Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 39, 1 Samuel chapters 24 and 25. In 1 Samuel chapter 24 is one of the more famous Bible stories that speaks of the incident when David cut off a piece of King Saul's robe at a time when he could just as easily kill him. Could have ended David could have ended his his status as a fugitive. He could probably have taken the throne of Israel right at that moment for himself. But he chose otherwise. Now let me reiterate the significance of that choice. By deciding not to take matters into his own hands and instead allowing God to carry out whatever his plan in regards to Israel's government and David's life, many questions of royal succession and of the role of the divine in establishing Israel's kingly line were answered in the best possible way. Now this kind of flies right over our modern western heads because we're not a tribal-based society, but they were. You know, the longer I live, the more I travel to other nations and get to know other cultures, the more I understand that God works within the realities and the limitations of human existence including the diverse nature of the hundreds of cultures that our planet's population has divided itself into. You know, it's been the church's unwillingness to accept this attribute of Yehovah that has caused so much dissension among believers, driven many away from Christ and into the hands of false religion especially the Western church that's been the dominant portion of the church for perhaps the past thousand years, has come to inherently believe that the manifestations of God within our Western cultural norms are the only legitimate manifestations and all else are to be ignored or outright rejected. But the scriptures show us that the Creator made humans for His own good reasons. Divinely caused the human race to divide and to form a myriad of isolated populations and societies. And in doing so, it automatically created constraints and complexities around how the redemptive process could even operate. The very nature of our human (coughs) limits, possibilities, our humanity limits possibilities. And it also elevates every probability that much of the time we're going to actually be in opposition to the Lord. In some miraculous, unfathomable way, however, The perfect Father works with the imperfections of humanity to achieve His will without 
steamrolling right over the top of us. But he does it differently within different cultures. Talk to any missionary who's operated in the remote, remotest reaches of this earth and they'll tell you stories of how the Lord worked within some of those primitive cultures to demonstrate His truth and His glory in ways that those native to that culture could recognize. Ways that seem so strange, so alien to anything that missionary knew or that we know right up until they personally witnessed it. Ways that were at times more frightening than odd. Ways that at first seemed wrong rather than merely different or unexpected. Thus, when we delve deeper into these historical books of the Bible, and especially the time of the kings of Israel, realize that Jehovah, at his own choice, is operating within a Middle Eastern tribal culture in ways that they can understand and recognize. Even if it seems troubling for us. So it was critically important that how David achieved the throne was accomplished in a manner that Israelites and others in David's day and then later on could see as legitimate and also see, most importantly, as God orchestrated rather than as the clever result of the plans of a powerful man. Okay, let's reread a portion of chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24, we're going to start reading at verse 8. Page 325 in your complete Jewish Bibles. Now, depending on your Bibles, because the verses are a little, are numbered a little different, uh, I could be starting in a different place. Now, by saying this, David stopped his men. He wouldn't let them do anything to Saul. Saul got up, left the cave, and went on his way. And then David got up. And he went outside the cave where he called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to people who say David's out to harm you? Here today you've seen with your own eyes that and I put you in my power there in that cave. Some of my men said I should kill you, but I spared you. I said, I won't raise my hand against my Lord, because he is Adonai's anointed. Moreover, my father, look, here in my hand you see the corner of your cloak. By the fact that I only cut off a piece of your cloak and didn't kill you, you can see and understand that I have no plan to do harm or rebel. I haven't sinned against you even though you are seeking every chance you get to take my life. May Adonai judge between you and me. May Adonai avenge me on you. But I'll not lay a hand on you. As the old saying has it, out of the wicked comes wickedness. 
but I'll not lay a hand on you. The king of Israel has come on a campaign. After whom? Whom are you chasing? A dead dog? A single flea? Adonai be judge. Let him decide between you and me. May he take my side. May he rescue me from your power. And after David had finished speaking to Saul, Saul said, Is that your voice? My son, David? And then Saul cried and he wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I because you have treated me well while I have been treating you badly. You have made it clear to me today that you have done me good. For when Adonai put my fate in your hands, you didn't kill me. A man finds his enemy and lets him go unharmed? May Adonai reward you well for what you did to me today. Now I'm certain that you will indeed become king and that the kingship of Israel will be established in your hands. So swear to me by Adonai that you will not kill my descendants after I die or blot out my name from my father's family. David swore to Saul. Saul went home. But David and his men went back up to the stronghold. Nothing could have been more normal and usual and considered utterly acceptable than for a man to kill his enemy if given the opportunity. That David did not kill Saul and further ordered his men to not even bother this evil king goes against all convention. Thus when David, at a safe distance, reveals himself to Saul and he waves that cut off piece of the king's hem in the air, Saul is stupefied. He's almost speechless. So David's allowed to offer quite a lengthy speech to the king and the king listens in stunned silence. You know, David really didn't have to say too much for the king to understand that as of this moment, he ought to be dead. David explains, he pleads, actually, for Saul to finally understand that David is not his enemy. In fact, in verse 11, David calls Saul, My father. Now we need to see that this is very Middle Eastern language and thought that's being expressed here. But you know, we need to step back and realize that it also helps us in understanding the language of the New Testament as Yeshua speaks of Yehovah as his Abba, his Father, and as the Father speaks of Yeshua as his Ben, his Son. Now, David is in no way setting Saul on par with his true biological father, Yishai. Saul was even legally David's father-in-law, so that plays a bit of a role in what we're going to hear. But the father-son relationship of biblical Middle Easterners is very similar to how it still is to this day. The father holds supreme family authority and esteem and his son is on a lower level of status. 
whatever measure of authority the son has is given to him by his father. It can be revoked at any time. The father's supreme authority never ends until the father dies. In the West, for a man, for an older man to call a younger man his son, or vice versa, it's mostly a statement of endearment. It's about affection. In the East, for a younger man to call an older man his father involves equal parts affection and submission. In the East, the younger man who is as a son under the authority of the man who is as a father to him, it's understood that the father figure looks out for the best interests of his son. But the father figure is also revered. He's the wiser. He holds more power. He acts as judge. He generally lords over the son. This is what David was meaning when he yelled, My father to Saul. Now in verse 12, in some more typical oriental thought, David is calling on God to be the judge, the shofet, in the dispute between them. The the, the judge in ancient thought also was at times the one who wrought the punishment. In other words, David is saying that whatever wrong Saul may have done towards David, that David is satisfied to leave it with God to determine if and how any wrong occurred and then if it should be avenged. But David also states that he would not be a participant in exacting revenge even if it was called for. It was a way of saying for David, I forgive you to Saul. However, by saying it in the manner that he did, you see it saves face for Saul to not be spoken to in terms of forgiveness, which would have automatically then indicated that David judged the king of Israel as guilty. A son has no right to judge his father. But the father has the right to judge the son. Thus David's insistence that Yehovah be the judge between them. Further, David quotes what must have been an ancient (laughs) proverb of some kind. Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. Then he goes on to say that no matter what the situation, he is not going to lay a hand of harm upon Saul. Now, now what this proverb is not a biblical proverb. Right? But the point is very well understood. It is that deeds express dispositions. If David was a wicked man, then it's self-evident that Saul would have already been a dead man. Therefore, that David didn't harm Saul is de facto proof that David is not a wicked man. Now, to further make his point that he's more than willing 
to submit to Saul based, of course, on the understanding that Saul recognizes David as a son and not an enemy. David wonders why this great king will lure himself to chase after a dead dog like David. Now, this is merely an expression of ultimate self-debasement. David is holding himself up as insignificant in importance as compared to Saul. And then after David's long speech, it's Saul's turn. Now Saul is genuinely affected by David's actions and his words. So in verse 16, the king responds, Is that your voice, my son, David? Again, while some amount of affection is being expressed by calling David my son, it's done from a position of superiority and authority. It's a kind of acceptance to David's request for Saul to be David's father. but, But one must also see that tears can flow as a result of self-pity as easily as they can from repentance. I think we can discern without much difficulty which of these two possible causes for Saul's weeping is relevant in this case. Yet even so, the emotionally volatile king admits to David that David is more righteous than he. In Hebrew, righteous is sadik. Sadik. And surprisingly, this is the first use of that term in the book of Samuel. Now we have to see this as the impact that it was on ancient readers. Samuel was the most revered holy man among all 12 tribes in this era. He was so revered that we'll find reference to him in the New Testament and even place him nearly on par with Moses. The term Zadok, righteous, wasn't even applied to the great Samuel. But here it's applied to David. Now remembering that David is the shadow, the type of the future Messiah, this is quite an interesting epithet to bestow upon David, especially coming from the mouth of the anti-king. It is truly a prophetic nugget. And then Saul continues by quoting an ancient proverb of his own. If a man finds his enemy, will he let him go unharmed? Only someone who truly fears the God of Israel would behave in such a manner. That's the essence of that. Saul then admits what Jonathan has already told David about his father. Shaul knows, he knows, that David is going to be king over Israel. The words also mean, you see, that David's dynasty will be established. His offspring, the house of David, will rule even after David is gone. 
And because Saul understands this, and due to the the bloody custom of a new king who gains the throne by deposing the former one, he kills the former king and all of his family. So Saul asks David to promise him in God's name to not not kill his children. And when Saul asked David to not blot out his name from his father's family, it means, please don't bring to a complete end my bloodlines. See, this was considered an absolute horror to the ancient mind, even to a Hebrew. Because that meant that King Saul's spiritual essence would end if there was no blood descendants in whom it could carry forward. Well, David swears this to Saul, and and we see David true to his word when, after he is king, he hunts for any of Saul's descendants to show mercy to them. And he finds the disabled Mephibosheth, whom he brings to his home. Well, the two men parted, but in reality, nothing has changed. Nothing's changed. David removed himself and his men back to Ein Gedi, Saul back to Gibeah. David knew all too well Saul's ups and downs, those bouncing emotions, and that his words could not be trusted. Given a little time to think things over, the king would soon revert to his paranoia and his homicidal self-interest. Let's move on to chapter 25. Chapter 25, verse 7. Shmuel died. All of Israel assembled to mourn him, bury him at his home in Ramah. And then David set out and went down to the Paran Desert. Now, there was a man in Ma'on who had property in Carmel. He was very rich, having 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And this man's name was Nebal. His wife was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and attractive, but the man, he was surly and mean in his actions. He belonged to the clan of Caleb. Caleb. Now, David there in the desert heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, and David sent off ten young men with these orders. Go up to Nabal and Carmel and bring him greetings from me. Say, long life, shalom to you, shalom to your household, shalom to everything that is yours. I have heard that you now have shears. Your shepherds were with us for a while. We did them no harm. They found nothing missing all the time they were in Carmel. As for your own men, they'll tell you. Therefore, receive my men favorably, since we've come on a festival day. Please give what you can to your servants and to your son David. And on arrival, David's men said all these things to Nabal in David's name. And when they had finished, Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is this son of Yeshai? There are many servants nowadays running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread, 
my water, my meat that I slaughtered for my shears and give it, give it to men coming from who knows where. So David's men turned around and went back and came and told him everything Nabal had said. David turned to his men. Buckle your swords on, all of you. Each one buckled on his sword, David too, and there went up after David about 400 men while 200 stayed with the equipment. But one of Nabal's men told Abigail, his wife, David sent messengers from the desert to greet our master, and he flew on them in a rage. Even though the men had been very good to us, they didn't harm us. And when we found nothing, and we found nothing missing during the entire time, we went with them while we were out in the countryside. They served as a wall protecting us day and night all the time we were there with them, caring for the sheep. So now, decide what you're going to do for clearly harm's on its way to our master and all of his household. But he's so mean, nobody can tell him anything. Abigail wasted no time in taking 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, six quarts of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 fig cakes, having loaded them on donkeys. And then she said to her young men, Go on ahead of me, I'll come along after you. But she didn't tell her husband, Nabal. Well, she was riding her donkey down past the hiding place in the mountain when David and his men descended towards her and she met them. And David had said, what a waste it's been guarding everything this this fellow has in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He has repaid me bad for good. And then he swore, "May may God do the same and more to David's enemies if I leave even one male of everything he owns. And when Abigail saw David, she hurried to dismount from her donkey. She fell on her face in front of David and bowed down to the ground. And having having fallen at his feet, she said, It's my fault, my Lord. It's all my fault. Please, let your servant speak in your ears and listen to what your servant says. Please, my, my Lord shouldn't pay any attention to this worthless fellow Nabal because he's just like his name. Nabal means boor. Boorishness stays with him. But I, your servant, did not see my Lord's men whom you sent. Therefore my Lord, as Adonai lives and as you live, inasmuch as Adonai has kept you from the guilt of shedding blood and from taking vengeance into your own hands, therefore may your enemies and anyone seeking your harm be as worthless as Nabal. Meanwhile, let this present which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the, to the men in my Lord's service and please forgive the offense your servant has caused because Adonai will certainly establish my Lord's dynasty. For my Lord fights Adonai's battles. Nothing bad has been found in you all your life long. Even if someone comes along searching for you and seeking your life, your life will be bound in the bundle of life with Adonai your God. But the lives of your enemies he will fling away as if from the pouch of a slingshot. Then when Adonai has done all the good to my Lord that he has said about you and made you rule over Israel, what happens here will not have become an obstacle to you or be cause for remorse to my Lord, neither that you shed blood without cause nor that my Lord took vengeance into his own hands. Finally, When Adonai has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. 
David said to Abigail, Blessed be Adonai, the God of Israel, who sent you today to meet me. Blessed be your tactfulness. Blessed be yourself for having kept me today from the guilt of shedding blood and taking vengeance into my own hands. For as Adonai, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you hadn't rushed to meet me, not even one male would have been left to Nabal by morning. So David received from her what she had brought to him and then said to her, Go, go up in peace to your home. I have listened to what you said and I have granted your request. Abigail came to Nabal. There he was in his house, holding a feast fit for a king. He was in high spirits because he was very drunk. So she told him nothing, whatever, until the next morning. And in the morning when he was sober, and his wife told him what had happened, he had a stroke. And he became as motionless as a stone. Some ten days later, Adonai struck Nabal and he died. Now when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be Adonai for having taken my side in the matter of Nabal's insult for having prevented his servant from doing anything bad. On the contrary, Adonai has caused Nabal's bad deeds to return on his own head. And then David sent a messenger that he wanted to make Abigail his own wife. And when David's servants reached Abigail and Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to bring you to him to be his wife. And she got up, bowed with her face to the ground and said, Your servant is here to serve you, to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Abigail then hurried, set out and rode off on a donkey with five of her female servants following her. She went after David's messengers and she became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Yezreel. Both of them became his wives. Meanwhile, Shaul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who came from Galim. This is a story, essentially, about David being saved from himself by a very good, very righteous woman named Abigail. Now, it's interesting to me how regularly the Bible elevates women. It's significant because in the typical Oriental society, women were little more valuable than cattle. The God of Israel would tolerate no such attitude among his people. The narrative begins by announcing the death of Samuel. And this is important because... First, it establishes a time frame for when David moved from Angedi to the wilderness of Paran. And second, because with the passing of Samuel, all hope now for peace between David and Saul is passed with him. Samuel was a transformational character who also bridged the divide of loyalties among the various tribal coalitions. There was no other single man since Joshua's death who held the respect of all 
twelve tribes and whose authority was honored by all Israel. Even Saul feared him. Samuel was buried in his hometown of Ramah. In fact, you can go visit Samuel's tomb to this day, just minutes outside of Jerusalem. Now some of your Bibles may say that David went to Maon and not Paran. Paran is taken from the Hebrew texts, Maon from the Greek texts. There's no reason to alter Paron to Maon as some ancient editor apparently did. Paran is to the southeast side of the Dead Sea. It's on the Arabian Peninsula. Ein Gedi was too easily within reach of King Saul, thus the move. Well, the scene of this important story is set up for us in verse 2. A fellow who was currently in Maon had this thriving business in a place called Carmel. He was very wealthy. This is expressed by the 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats he possessed. Now, this is not Mount Carmel up in the north, okay, the place where visitors go today. Okay, this Carmel was in the territory of Judah. It was here, if you'll recall, that Saul had erected a monument to himself to memorialize his victory over Amalek. Now, David had likely met this wealthy man while he and his 600 men were camped out on the outskirts of Maon some months earlier, and that his flocks were so enormous meant that they, they had to be moved all over Judah in a constant search for fresh pasture and sufficient water. But it was in Carmel, apparently, where the tea, sheep were taken for shearing, and then where he would sell and trade the wool. This man's name was Nebal. His wife was Abigail. Now, Neval means fool, disgraceful, a person without godly wisdom. Obviously, no parent would give their child such a name. No man would allow himself to be addressed that way. Thus, like so many other names that we'll find in our Bibles, this was more of an epithet given to that person well after the fact than that person's actual given name. The purpose in doing that was to describe this man's character, which of course also identifies his role in the story. Now his wife's name, Abigail, means my father is joy or or, my father is delighted. So the contrast is drawn. Nabal and his wife Abigail are opposites. The husband is everything God detests. The wife, everything God values. Then in verse 3 we learn that Nabal belonged to the clan of Caleb. Caleb. Now this is the same Caleb who along with Joshua scouted out the promised land when Moses was still leading Israel and then they came back with a good report about the land and they urged Moses to take it. 
Remember now the other ten men who accompanied them said that while the land was indeed wonderful in all respects, it was populated with fierce people. Try to take it was suicide. The result was that God cursed these refugees from Egypt and sent them back out into the desert until that first generation of the Exodus died off. But there were a couple of exceptions to that. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua was of the tribe of Ephraim. Caleb was of the tribe of Judah. However, we also learn that Caleb's clan mixed itself with a people called the Kenizzites. They were a, a Canaanite tribe. And so there was always some friction between Caleb's and the several other clans that together formed the tribe of Judah. Well, the clan of Caleb was assigned to the area in and around Hebron if they could capture it from the Canaanites who held it when it was given to them. Now, this area was especially beautiful, very fertile, perfect for growing crops, raising animals. But see, this conquest wasn't accomplished until Caleb's, Caleb's younger half-brother, Otniel, led some men in battle and he took the city of Hebron for the clan. Well, now, after all these years since that, some three centuries we find here in Samuel that the clan of Caleb was still holding that area uh, of Hebron and that Nabal was of this clan and this is the general area that's at the center of our story here now. Well, verse 4 explains that David heard that the sheep shearing of Nabal's flocks had begun. Now, David was in the Paran wilderness when this word reached him. This wouldn't have been unexpected news for a former shepherd. Sheep shearing would have been going on pretty much throughout Canaan right now. So David dispatched ten trusted men to go to Nabal at his shearing operation in Carmel. Now we're going to talk about the significance of the number ten in due time. But let me point out that a group of ten men is generally called in the Bible a minyan. It's a proper number. It's an ideal minimum of men to form a congregation, to form an assembly. Now David sends a message with these men. And of course it contains typical Middle Eastern greetings and all sorts of polite banter. And three times the men are to wish shalom over Nabal and his family. This is very friendly. It's an abundance of goodwill being sent. But contained within that message is a request for supplies as a gift for David and for his small community. I hate to say this, but it somewhat reminds us of the Godfather movie. When the mobster would walk into a shop, be very cordial, effusive in praise, and ask the business owner for something to be given to him. Now, it may have sounded like a request for a favor or a blessing, but in reality, it was a demand. And all parties knew it. 
it was something that could not be refused without dire consequences. The mobster's view was he was protecting the shopkeeper. So the shopkeeper owed his protectors something in return for their services. Nabal was being strong-armed. And despite all the courteous-sounding flatteries, he knew it. And he didn't like it. He was a powerful man from a powerful clan. He wasn't used to being treated in a manner like this. Well, the Hebrew word for sheep shearing is gosesim. Gosesim. This word is the shepherd's equivalent of the harvesting and threshing season. Thus we read in verse 8 that it was a festive day. In Hebrew, Yom Tov, a good day. So this wasn't a religious feast day. It wasn't one of the seven biblical feasts. But it was a day of joy and partying and drinking that celebrated the harvest of wool. David's ten men were essentially unwelcome party crashers. And after David's men delivered that message, they sat down and they waited for the clan leader's response. Well, it wasn't quite what they expected, to say the least. Nabal was offended by this brazen demand, all this polite talk aside. Who is this David, this son of Yishai? He asks. Of course, this is a rhetorical question. It basically means, how dare he make such a demand to me? Nabal's rich and important. Yeshai is David's clan. It's a rival clan to Nabal's, the son of the clan of Caleb. Nabal's viewpoint is that even if David and his men had helped his shepherds in some way, it was certainly never asked for. Further, he insults David personally by characterizing him as nothing more than a slave who's escaped from his master and the land is overrun with those right now anyway. Oh boy. David's men take Nabal's response to David. The result's predictable. David loses his temper. He tells his men to put on their swords, prepare for battle. David left their desert stronghold with 400 armed men. The remaining 200 left behind to guard the camp and all their belongings from the ever-present marauders out there in the Arabian desert. Nabal had signed his own death warrant. His wife knew it. Although she wasn't present at her husband's tirade and impetuous response, someone who was came to her and told her what had happened. And they explained that indeed David and his men had treated them very well out in the wilderness. They had made sure that the sheep were protected from both men and wild beasts. In fact, not one animal came up missing, which was unheard of. But rather than show gratitude or any kind of wisdom, Nabal insulted the men and their master, David and essentially instigated a war. Avigail knew this was big trouble. Well, the man who came to Nabal's wife had no qualms in explaining to her 
which she already knew about her husband. He was mean, stubborn, and he listened to nobody. So if Abigail didn't do something, a lot of people were going to die, probably including her husband. Actually, in verse 17, the man who came to Abigail said Nabal was a Ben Belial, a son of Belial, a son of worthlessness. Look, this is about as harsh and blunt a criticism that can be aimed at anybody. What we have here is the makings of a battle of honor. Okay. David was going to come to Carmel and murder Nabal and others in what we would call today honor killings. Okay. But thankfully, Avigail was a wise and virtuous woman who was not about to let a lot of innocent people die over a little food and some rash words if she could stop it. Quickly she takes action and without her husband's knowledge she prepares a generous peace offering to give to David. And her concern was the continuation of her household. But at the same time, she has the perception, should I say intuition, to see that David is special in God's eyes. And that he will hold a set-apart place in Israel's future. She packs up 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five butchered sheep, about a bushel of dried grain, some raisins, some fig cakes. By the way, fig cakes were just pressed dried figs. And she places them on donkeys in hopes of intercepting David before he arrives. She knows that the two biggest kids on the block are about to face off. Once Nabal sees David coming their damaged Middle Eastern sensibilities are going to take over. Nothing is going to stop the torrent of blood that's going to follow. Naturally, she did all this in secret. Now, I said at the beginning of this chapter that this is a story about David being saved from himself. David is about to commit a ruinous act that had it been allowed, might have altered history. The truth is, Nabal had committed no violation of Torah law, unless we counted it as not loving his neighbor as himself. Nothing more had happened than David figured he was owed something and Nabal refused. All that had come between David and Nabal were words. No harm was done, no property stolen. But for this, David was ready in his violent anger to commit murder. You know, it's so ironic to me that this story would appear immediately after we find David with a seemingly justifiable if not compelling reason to kill a man, Saul, because this man was intent on killing him. If ever there was a case for self-defense, it would have been that one. But in paying attention to the Spirit of God and refusing to take the advice of his men, David spared the life of King Saul. Here now, David was in an out-of-control rage he was ready to kill anyone in his path for no other reason 
that a man had insulted him. So now we're going to see how the all-merciful God stopped this atrocity. Not so much for the sake of those who might die, as for David's sake, and for the sake of God's redemptive plan. What a lesson there is for every man here, especially the followers of Yeshua. Lest we think too highly of ourselves, no matter how godly our intents might be to us, our wicked natures lurk, ready to pounce. How often our evil inclinations get in the way of our relationship with our God and in our service to Him. Sometimes, you know, it's not as blatant as doing wrong. It can be as subtle as choosing a way that's not the way that God's perfect will has for us. It may not be that we don't prosper from it. Rather, it was that the kingdom of God was meant to prosper from it, and it didn't. Without our even knowing it, we are constantly, invisibly guided, unaware. The Lord intervenes in circumstances and indeed. If He did not, we would all lose our way. We destroy the very purpose for which we were born. Didn't get that job you coveted? Perhaps the Lord was protecting you from failure. You never did amass the wealth you felt you needed to be happy. Perhaps the Father knew in His mercy that it was more than you could handle and still remain true to Him. That girl you wanted to marry so desperately broke your heart when she said no. Maybe the Lord has another, more perfect spouse for you that will help you fulfill your spiritual destiny, one you're not even aware of. David was on his way to commit blood guilt. It would have been a terrible thing that could easily have destroyed his reputation and his witness. But even more, it very probably would have disqualified him from being God's anointed king. We'll see what happens with this next week.